stay on that topic, but I'm going I'm to try to stick to my script because I got a lot to say, not enough time to do it. So this time I want to dismiss all of our kids and our youth, everyone else, if you would turn with me to the book of Colossians. We're going to read Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Started last week talking about our series here of giving thanks. And last week we talked a little bit about hope. Tonight, I want to talk about giving thanks in the seeds of gratitude. What are the things that we need to learn how to cultivate within our life, within our walk with God, to develop a heart, a spirit of gratitude? Colossians chapter 3, we'll read verse 17. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed... Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. I'm going to read two more passages. You can uh, kind of follow along. Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And then finally, 1 Thessalonians 5, 18. In everything, give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive the word, Lord. Let it fall on good ground, that in due season it would bring forth fruit. Help us, O oh God, in this world of turmoil to remember how blessed we are to have a relationship with the God of the universe. Open our ears to hear, Lord. Remove every spirit of distraction from this house. And we give you all the glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you're sitting, I'm going to um, play a really, really short video. It's maybe one minute. But follow along here, and we'll talk about this video. That I can hear. I'm grateful that my heart is beating. I'm grateful that I have a roof over my head. And then you extend that. I'm grateful for the challenges in my life because they're making me stronger. I'm grateful for the challenges in my life because they're activating talents and gifts within me. I'm grateful for challenges in my life because the potential within me is bigger than any challenge and it's being activated. It's making me become more myself. And then the third level of gratitude is I'm simply grateful for nothing at all. It's a very high state of consciousness. So regardless of where you are on that particular domain, grateful for something, grateful for challenges, grateful for nothing, the universe will continue to pour forth blessings more and more and more for you to be grateful for. So there's three levels okay, of gratitude. Go ahead and stop it there. Counting your blessings. <laughs> you know, they, they, I chose this video not because it was all that unique, because the truth is I found a multitude of videos that essentially said something to the same extent. This just happened to be the shortest one I, I chose to be able to share with you. And here's this, I watched this video like four times because I kept telling myself, I have to be missing something. Like, was there a line like deleted somewhere in the middle of the thing that I missed? Somehow I must have missed what he said because he starts out, it starts out good, right? He starts off by saying, hey, in gratitude, we need to be thankful for our blessings, count our blessings. Okay, I don't disagree with that. We should take stock of the things that God has done for us and, and to be grateful for that. But then he kind of says, okay, and then you need to be thankful for your challenges. Okay, I can see that. You know, there are plenty of challenges in my life I look back on, and, and now I see that God used those challenges to help me grow closer to him and, and mature in my faith and those things. But what he was thanking, being grateful for his challenges, wasn't quite that. He said, I'm grateful for my challenges because they are helping me activate what's inside of me that, it, that I will be greater so that I can be more of myself. Those were his words, so that I can be more of myself. And then you get to the highest state of gratitude where you are grateful for nothing. And I, I'm not going to lie. Like, I kept out, I'm like, did he really say that the highest state of gratitude is when you're grateful for nothing? And I will tell you, if you think that's confusing, reading the comments 
on this video. Literally, people say, oh, I am so glad when I became grateful for nothing because then the universe will give me more. Give you more what? Things to not be grateful for? Like, there's not even logic in the statement. The reason, though, that I even bring this up at all, and I'm not trying to bash this individual. I don't know him. I've, I've never seen any of his other stuff. Maybe there was more context that was left out of the video I didn't see. It's possible. But the truth is, is there are lots of teaching that follows that mindset. That what you need in life is to be thankful to the universe and then the universe will give you what you're seeking because you're thankful to the universe. You ask them what is the universe and you can't get a straight answer because they don't know themselves. Um, it's not new, it's been around forever. There was, I, I wanna say it was like 20 or 30 years ago, the first time this uh, concept of the secret came out where like the secret to your happiness is you just have to put out there in ether what you want and trust that the universe will then give it to you. It's not new. It goes back way before then, but it keeps popping up, specifically in this time of year. Because for many people, this is the time of year where maybe we actually do take some time to go to church. Maybe we take some time to talk with people about things we're grateful for. It's one of the few times in many people's lives, unfortunately, even some who call themselves Christians, where we actually stop and think about what we're grateful for in life. And in the moment between all of the Hallmark videos and the movies and the songs, we get this initial kernel of truth where we are thankful for all our blessings, but then that begins to devolve into teachings that are not biblical. But we listen to it, and it sounds good initially, and it becomes something that we hide within here. And it becomes very easy to understand why this world is so mixed up all the time. Because we hear something, as long as it's pleasing to the ears, it must be good. And then we let that begin to affect our life and our beliefs. But what I really want you to know is this. This gentleman here, Mr. Beckwith, or I suppose I should use his actual title, Reverend Beckwith says that we need to be thankful for nothing so that the universe will give us more nothing with no mention of God. No mention of the spirit, no mention of the word, no mention of prayer, spiritual disciplines, nothing. Reverend Beckwith says just be thankful to the universe and you will get more of things to not be grateful for. And as much as I want to laugh at the video, in all reality, it actually makes me a little bit sad. Because I know that is not uncommon. We have a world that is so lost in sin and so deceived by the, the, the statements of the enemy that they don't even know that they are lost. And it makes it very hard for them to come out of that because they believe that they are right. And that's not new. Jesus told the, the Jewish elite, he said, you, you can't get delivered from your blindness because you won't even acknowledge that you're blind in the first place. And so sometimes when I look at this, I'm like, God, I don't even know where to start. Because I have friends that I talk to and they're saying all of these things and, and it's so obviously false on its face. But it doesn't matter if it's factually false, if emotionally it's true to them. That's the place we find ourselves in. And if we're not careful, that's the place that we can even get ourselves to at some time. So what I want to do here for just a little bit, and I'm going to try to get through all of this the best that I can. I want to take just a little bit of time. We're going to look at two individuals, Daniel and Jonah, to hopefully help us to understand what are the primary seeds, if you will, of cultivating a life of gratitude, a, a biblical gratitude. So I'm going to start in Daniel, and we're going to read in chapter 2. I'm going to kind of skip through a little bit for the sake of time, but please, by all means, if you have time later on, go back and read it. Read the whole chapter. I don't ever want you just to take my word for it because I'm standing up here. I want you to read the word for yourself and to make sure that you understand what is true. Daniel chapter 2, it starts this way. It says, And in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. Then the king commanded to call the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said unto them, 
I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac, O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Verse 5, So the, or the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream, with the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces, and your houses shall be made a dunghill. But if ye show me the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation thereof. Let's pause for just a second here. Let me explain what's happening. So this is the point in which much of Israel has been taken captive by the Babylonians. One of the things that the Babylonian Empire did is when they would go in and conquer another nation, they would find what they believed to be the smartest, wisest individuals within that particular area, and they would take them as prisoners. And they would become consorts to the king, meaning that they were kept apart from everyone else to serve at the king's beckoning to provide him with wisdom and counsel. So because of this, Daniel... And the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, are all have been taken captive as designated, if you will, wise men. And so what we see here is, is Nebuchadnezzar coming to his um, other wise men, astrologers, soothsayers, so on and so forth. And he tells them, he said, listen, I had this dream. And it was kind of a crazy dream. And I need you guys to tell me what the dream means. But unlike other times, the king decides, but I'm not even going to tell you what the dream is. You need to tell me what I dreamed and what it means. Now, personally, I think it was pretty clever on Nebuchadnezzar's part. Because if you tell me what you dreamed, I promise you I could come up with a couple, you know, explaining of what it is. may not have any truth, but you give me the details, I'll make up a good reason. So Nebuchadnezzar, kind of knowing this, says, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to tell me my dream and my, the meaning of it, or you're all going to die. I mean, that, that's what he said. But then he takes it a step further. He doesn't just say, you group of people right here in front of me, tell me what the dream is and the interpretation or you'll die. No, no, no. He said, if you can't tell me the dream and the interpretation, every wise man in the, in the whole area is going to be killed. So this is where we get introduced to our main person here, Daniel. So Daniel at this point is being kept aside at the palace. And, and he basically overhears that there has now been this decree that he is going to be killed along with all of the other wise men because no one could do what the king was asking. So one of the captains of the guards, his name was Ariok, comes to Daniel. And, and Daniel asks him, hey, why such a hasty decision? Like, it was not that long the decree came forth and now he wants to slaughter all of us. What's going on? Daniel didn't even understand why he was about to be put to death. So the captain tells him. So what does Daniel do? Daniel goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the four of them consult the only person who knows the answer, God. They get together and they pray. And here, let's see if I can find it real quick. Look down here at oh, 13. Let's start in 13, and we'll kind of pick up here. And the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. Then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered... Sorry, that just completely shut off on me. This is why I don't like using technology to preach. Okay, the, um, it says that the, the wise men, they basically prayed to God. In verse 14, Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart... Wrong chapter. I apologize. Hold on. Let me back up just a little. That's Daniel 6. Okay, here we go. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is this decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning the secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So now we'll pick up in verse 25. 
Then Ariok brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Now pause before we read the last two verses. Because I want you to understand how Daniel responds. Because how he responds is going to play very strongly into what is going to take place a little further in the book. So all of these wise men, these astrologers, these soothsayers, were unable to do the thing that, that the king asked of them. And so now Daniel goes before the king to tell the king what he wants to hear. So Nebuchadnezzar then asked Daniel, are you able to reveal to me what I dreamed and what it means? Verse 27, I want you to understand how he responds. Pay attention here. It says, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions on thy head upon thy bed are these. Now, I'm going to stop there because we don't need the rest of the story for what I wanted to bring out to here. So first big thing here, you got to understand the risk for what Daniel was doing. This wasn't a, hey, let's come over and hang at your house and I might be able to like, tell you what this means, that kind of situation. No, this is a, if I get this wrong, I am going to be killed. That's, that's the risk that's happening here. So Daniel does two things that in my, my opinion, if you will, my understanding is amazing. Number one, he's even willing to take the risk. Understanding what, what was going on, that he was even willing and had enough faith to trust God to, to give to him what he needed to tell the king. Already, that's, that's a big deal, at least in my book. For me to walk in front of someone who's going to kill me if I mess up and to go in faith and do what I feel I need to do. But then the second part of that, and this is where we as people get in trouble sometimes. It's one thing to have enough courage to face something that is incredibly hard. And then when we get it, when it happens, we get it right, we pat ourselves on the back and that kind of thing. But it's a whole other level of spiritual maturity. When you stand in a place like this before the king, knowing that if you mess up, you're going to be killed, but not only now does he say what the correct answer is, but how he begins and ends the whole story is saying, yeah, they couldn't do it and I couldn't do it. But there is a God in heaven. So already Daniel's perception, his understanding of who God is and who he is in relation to God helps him to maintain the right outlook and attitude in how he deals going forward. Now, the reason this story is really important is because this is the backdrop. This is how Daniel becomes promoted along the way. That he's able to do this and there are other dreams that happens and other things that he rightly um, discloses. And so because of this, now in chapter 6, we're going to pick back up in chapter 6. Now there's been an overthrow. Nebuchadnezzar's gone and now Darius is the new ruler who is in charge. Darius kept Daniel in the king's court because he heard all the stuff about Daniel, and Daniel was able to be uh, of help, if you will, to Darius as well. So now I want you to notice here, Daniel chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 1 and skip around just a little bit. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and the princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Pause. So now we went from Daniel, who was a prisoner, who stood before Nebuchadnezzar and found favor because of God, and got to be in the king's court, to now Darius not only wants to keep him in that position, 
But he's now going to elevate Daniel above the princes, above the presidents, above all of the other individuals of authority, and put Daniel over all of them. As you can probably guess, this did not go over very well with all of the other people. I mean, Daniel, he's a prisoner. He's a Jew. He's, he's you know, he's a second class because this is Babylon. And, like, he's just a prisoner. Why on earth should he be giving directions to people? Sounds like another story I heard in Egypt about a guy who was sold into slavery and rose to second in command. Verse 4 says, Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. And listen to this. This is what the enemy likes to do. They looked at Daniel. They examined his life. They examined how he operated. And they realized there is nothing this guy is doing that we can easily point to and get him in trouble for. They watched him day in and day out, and there was nothing on the surface that they could do to point out his wrong. But then it says this, verse 5, Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king, and thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors, the princes, the counselors, and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the, um, signed the writing and the decree. Now, pause right here for just a moment because you need to understand what they did. They recognized, look, he's not doing anything bad. There's nothing we can point to that he's got, we can get him in trouble for. But they knew one thing about him, and this is a testament to Daniel's character. Because despite where he was in this kingdom, this kingdom that was pagan in origin, this kingdom that worshipped false gods and idols and did all of these things, this individual who was second in command in such a kingdom, they knew because of his consistency, the only thing we can get him on is he follows the laws of his God above everything else. So all we need to do is put him at odds between what our king says and what his God says. And if we can do that, then we'll have him. Now, if you can for a moment, imagine how Daniel may, may perceive this. And, and I don't know, I've said this many times, I have to visualize the stuff in my head to make it make sense to me. So I'm thinking, here is Daniel. Here is this person who was taken as a prisoner, who over several different stories is faithful to God, and God uses that to put him in positions of influence within the kingdom. And now, not only was he put in a position of influence under the Babylonians, but when the Medes and Persians come in and wipe out the Babylonian leadership, they keep him around. Not only do they keep him around, they promote him to second over the whole kingdom. Okay? So, if Daniel is human, like most of us, you have to think somewhere like, hey, I must be a little bit important. I mean, I, I've made it now under multiple leaders. I'm second in command. Like, things are going good. Okay? So when Daniel does what we're about to talk about, I want you to understand he knew what it was he might be giving up. All right, so here we go. We're going to start in verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, means he knew what the law was. He went into his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Now, I want you to really mark mentally, highlight whatever you want to, the last four words, as he did aforetime. Because if you read the first part of that verse alone, it seems like Daniel was just doing this to stick it to the king. But that's not what the verse is saying. The verse is saying he knew what the law said. He knew that there was a, a decree written. 
that if someone were to ask of God in this 30-day window, that, he was, that they would be killed. But despite knowing that law, as he had done so many times before, because why do you think these other leaders knew to put this specific thing in place? Because they witnessed this man day after day go up to the room, open his windows, and pray in faithfulness to God. That's why they attacked him in this manner. Because Daniel had set his life up in a way of such consistency and faithfulness to God and his word that they knew without a shadow of a doubt, oh, we can do this because we know he'll be there. And Daniel, even when he knew the risk, it didn't matter. He still went. Verse 11 says, Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Then they came near and spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or any man within 30 days, save thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Meaning that once it's written down, it has to come to pass. They can't go back and change it. Then answered they and said before the king that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petitions three times a day. Then the king, when he heard, this, heard these words, was sore displeased with himself. Notice that. He was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till he, the going down of the sun to deliver him. The king did not want to kill Daniel. Daniel had been someone who was faithful in all of that he did. He was someone that, that, that this king became to trust and to provide wisdom and counsel. And he realized that he had been duped, if you will. But now he had no choice but to follow through with the sentence. And what we see here, let's skip on down to verse 18. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments of music brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Daniel had been put into the den with the lions. And this is what is happening with the king during this time. And remember, the king did not want to kill Daniel. He didn't want him to die, but it's what he felt that he had to do because of the law. So now we see this being played out because it says here that as Daniel is in the lion's den overnight, that this king cannot sleep, that he cannot be comforted, being concerned for Daniel. Verse 19, Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel, and the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angels and has shut the mouths of the lions, that they not hurt me for as much as before him innocency was found in me. And also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. And the rest of the story goes that the king took those people who came and had convinced the king to write this law that they were then thrown into that very same den of lions. They did not make it out in the same way that Daniel did. What I want you to know from this first person, and I'm going to have to speed up here. What I want you to know from this first person is this. Daniel remained faithful at every step of his journey. From being the person who was removed from his home and his family, the person who was in a, a prison, with no possibility that he knew of at the time of ever being able to go back to his family. From the times of great persecution and trial, from the, from the constant uh, 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 calls of the other people who were the wise men, constantly looking for a way to get rid of him 
and the three Hebrew boys. He remained faithful all the way up to him being put in second in command. And this is why I love how Daniel responds when the king comes back and he asks Daniel, Daniel, did you make it? Was your God actually able to save you? And Daniel responds in two main things. First, he says this, yes, my God is able to do it. What he did there in that moment, at least how I read that is, further give credence to how he perceives God and how he perceives himself in relation to God. He doesn't start his answer by saying, well, of course, I'm second in command and I'm, the, I'm like a super great guy. Of course I didn't die. No. And I have to believe that much like the three Hebrew boys, much like uh, uh, Joseph, that there were times where they did not know for certainty how God would make it go about, meaning that they did not know if God was going to actually deliver them physically or if they were going to die, but then know that they would be with God in that way. But even with not knowing how it was going to play out, they still remained in faithfulness to God. They didn't impugn God's character and become, oh, I don't know if God can actually do this. So Daniel shows yet again how that he trusts God above the king or anyone else. And the amazing thing to me is Daniel not only sets this amazing example for Darius to see who his God is. Daniel was able to do this for multiple kings. Nebuchadnezzar, when he gave Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream, Nebuchadnezzar responds by saying, oh, surely your God is the God. Now, he did a lot of other crazy messed up things along the way. The point is, is that Daniel, in his faithfulness to who God was, his understanding of who God was and who he was in relation to God, allowed him not only to remain faithful, but to also not lose his gratitude toward God. You see, it's one thing for God to deliver you in a situation and then for you to come up to another situation and maybe God will deliver me, but can you still be thankful that you're about to be thrown into the den of a lion? Can you still maintain gratitude for a God who is about to allow this other event to take place? Daniel was because he knew who God was. Now let's go to our second person, Jonah. And I'm not going to, I thought about reading a, a good bit of the story here, but I'm just going to kind of surmise it for you because I want to really get to what, what it really means here and how it's going to help us with the seeds of gratitude and how we can grow those in our lives. So Jonah, very short, very short book, four chapters. Jonah was a prophet, right? We don't really know a ton about Jonah's life. There really isn't a ton written about him. But what we find is that Jonah was given a, a command, if you will, given a message from God, a decree that he is to go to the city of Nineveh and to tell them that God was going to kill them if they did not repent. So this message was not necessarily God saying, go and tell them I'm about to kill them. It was more of God saying, listen, I want to show mercy even in this situation to these people over here. And you're going to go and you're going to tell them that if they don't change their ways, if they don't repent, that they will be killed. But Jonah's like, whoa, 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 wait, wait, wait. I'm a prophet. I'm Jewish. You know, we're your chosen people. And those people over there are the bad guys. Nineveh being part of Assyria, one of the mortal enemies, if you will, of God's people. They had gone back and forth in fighting numerous times. It was known throughout the history, not just within the Jewish history, but in other texts, it explains how brutal the Assyrians were and how that the things that they did to places that they conquered and did to the people and the women and the children, horrible people. Almost to a point of if you don't, haven't been in some situation, you couldn't even fathom it. So now you get a little bit of context why, why, Dan, why Jonah may be a little bit confused. God, you want me, a prophet, a prophet of the chosen people, to go to Nineveh, the city of monsters, and tell them to repent so that you can then spare them. Hopefully we know the story. Jonah says, yeah, I'm not doing that. And he immediately gets on a ship to go to Tarshish, which is literally the exact opposite direction of Nineveh. 
So he gets in the boat, and they are heading that direction. All of a sudden, a storm comes in. The boat is rocking, and, and the people within the boat are scared because they know at this rate this boat is going to capsize, and we're all going to be killed. So they start looking around, and there was only one person, not out on the deck. There was only one person who was missing, and it was this guy Jonah, who they really didn't even know. So they go, and they find him asleep. They wake him up, and they, they begin to ask him, hey, man, why is this happening? What is going on? So Jonah finally admits to the people, he's like, listen, listen, listen. This is all happening. It's all my fault. I served the most high God, and I wasn't doing what he wanted me to. So if you want to be able to live, you have to throw me over the edge. Now, what I want you to, to know about that statement, about what he says there. Jonah did not say this statement to somehow magically save the people he was with or even to please God. No, Jonah was still trying to avoid having to go to Nineveh to talk to the monsters. So his solution is, hey guys, I got it. This is a big bad storm. Throw me over the edge and that'll be it. He was suicidal. He was so despondent about what was taking place, he asked these guys to throw him over the edge of the ship. He had no idea what was going to happen once he got thrown over. He didn't receive a prophecy from God telling him to go over the edge and see what would happen. He was just further trying to run from what God wanted him to do. But at the end of chapter 1, I love the last verse. See the last verse or the second to last verse. After all of his bad decision making, it says God prepared a great fish. Before Jonah had even made the decision to run from God, before he made the decision to have himself thrown overboard, God already was preparing a way. And the great thing is, he wasn't just preparing a way for Jonah. Because if it was just about Jonah by himself, all of this could have been avoided by not sending him to Nineveh. But God in his mercy was not just making a way for Jonah, he was making a way for Nineveh. That's why he put the, the fish out there. And so and then in chapters 2, what we find is, is Jonah goes into the belly of the well. He's in the belly of the well for, for three days. So in those three days, he finally gets some senses. The, the scriptures talk about, give this kind of picture of him essentially praying to God, recognizing that, that he should have listened to what God said and that he should follow after God's word. And so he repents. He, if you will, restores his relationship with God, and everything seems all right. So on day three, the, the big fish spits him out, and he comes up on a shore. Want to take a guess at where the shore he came up on was? Right on the journey to Nineveh. Okay? Now, the story says it's about a three-day journey to get across all of Nineveh. It was a big area, and he was on foot. So he comes into the town, and what he was supposed to say to, to these people... He was supposed to say, listen, you people, if you don't repent, God's going to destroy you. But that's not the only part of the message. He was supposed to also tell them that they could avoid this by repenting and turning away from their wickedness and serving God. But Jonah, despite all of what just happened, he kind of leaves out a few details. As in, he only says, God's going to kill all of you. His message stopped right there. He left all the other parts out. And then Jonah goes up onto a hill overlooking the city. He's not only content with telling them that God's about to destroy them, but he wants to watch. I promise you it's four chapters, but it's, it's an interesting read. So he goes up onto the hill, and he is looking over, and he's like, okay, let's see what's going to happen. And imagine his surprise when he looks down, and he finds the king of Syria and the people putting on sackcloth and ash and fasting and praying in repentance to God. And then what he sees is God doing what he said he was going to do and sparing the people in Nineveh. Now, the same time that this is happening, Scripture says that as Jonah is sitting up on this hill, the sun is beating down on him. And it is hot. The Bible says that he, God grows a plant that provides cover for him for shade. Jonah's thankful. 
But then God takes the plan away and he goes back to being hot. And now Jonah is angry again. What happened is, is Jonah was unable to realize that the fish and the plant were acts of mercy from God that were providing him protection and salvation. The same thing that he should have been telling the people in Syria about. But he was more concerned about his personal feelings than delivering God's message. Listen to this. Unintentionally, Jonah shared a glimpse of God's mercy to the undeserving. But so that they neither, so neither that they nor Nineveh could hear God's leniency, Jonah threw himself into the mouth of the sea, revealing that it was truly he and Israel that were the ruthless beast. Jonah would rather die than to see the evil live. He'd rather take God's message of mercy to the grave than to see him forgive his enemies. But God wanted to teach Jonah something about his mercy. So he appointed a great fish and a a ruthless beast of the sea to swallow Jonah and take him as his messenger of repentance to the undeserving. For three days Jonah prayed for mercy. He was not willing to preach to others. For three days, he talked about a salvation he refused to lend to others. For three days, Jonah relished in refuge he did not want to offer to Nineveh. And then God spit him out on an Assyrian beach. Jonah's burial in the depth of the sea and his miraculous resurrection from that grave was supposed to teach him God's mercy and redemption. And while Jonah did go into the city, he did not preach of that amazing grace or that redemption that God was offering. The message he gave simply says, in 40 days, God will destroy you. But the forgiveness Jonah experienced had no place in his prophetic declaration. So Jonah went up on a mountain to watch Nineveh and wait for the devastation. And when he saw God deliver them and do what he said he would, Jonah looked at God's forgiveness as hate. To Jonah, the light of God's forgiveness felt like the midday heat of the sweltering sun. So Jonah told God that he would rather die than to see that evil live. But instead of granting Jonah's request for death, God would show Jonah that he was the hypocrite. That as he appointed a fish to save him from death and resurrect him, God appointed a plant to shade and protect him. Jonah felt relief from the sun and its heat. He felt God's forgiveness under the shade of the tree. But when God took it away, Jonah began to quickly forget the lesson. He could not see that fish and the plant were both acts of forgiveness and mercy. He could not see that his hypocrisy, that he and his people were evil and needed God's leniency as much as those in Nineveh. He could not see that both Israel and Assyria were ruthless beasts. They were both equally undeserving. You see, this mentality is not unique to Israel. If we were to be honest, for most of man's history, sinful men have tried to arbitrate who should and who should not have access to God's mercy and forgiveness. Centuries later, as in Jonah, Israel had once again been swallowed by a ruthless beast, now known as the Roman Empire. In case you didn't know, Nineveh is only a hop, skip, and a jump from Israel. And when the Romans came in, both Israel and Nineveh fell under the same kingdom of the Roman Empire. Israel once again had been swallowed by a ruthless beast. Their bloodlust and barbarity moved into Israel's capital. Now it wasn't a story of of a prophet needing to go somewhere else to see the wickedness. But the wickedness had came to see Israel. And once again, God would send a messenger of mercy to them. And once again, Israel's preachers did not want to see God forgive. See, the Romans were monstrous. They were a beast. They were ruthless. But Jesus would preach that salvation was also going to come to them. The Jewish elite would not stand for this. They insisted, they instead were comfortable with aligning themselves with the Romans just to get rid of Jesus. Think about the absurdity of this arrangement. 
They were so mad at Jesus because he said that they were going to get salvation too that they then aligned with those people just to get rid of Jesus. You see, when we don't have a heart of gratitude, when we don't know how to look at who we are in relation to God and recognize his love and mercy when we were unworthy, we can very quickly find ourselves aligning with the enemy, fighting against the thing that's trying to save us. You see, they thought it was more acceptable to use the cruelest form of torture and execution by impaling Jesus on a crucifix. That was more acceptable than believing that the Romans and the Jews were in the same boat and were both in need of forgiveness. But here is the amazing thing. Jonah ran from Nineveh seeking to be free of his calling, but Jesus was willing to run to the cross to fulfill his Jonah left his watery grave still full of hate, but Jesus left his grave with a key to free all of the dead. Jonah would rather die than see evil live, but Jesus would rather die so that evil may live again. Jesus would rather mercifully go to the grave in order to forgive those who need it. For three days, Jesus was in the grave for the message of mercy he gave his life to preach. For three days he lay dead for the salvation that he died to teach. For three days Jesus experienced the judgment Jonah wanted Nineveh to reach. But on the third day, from the belly of the beast, Jesus would bring life. For when Jesus was spewed from the mouth of the deep like Jonah, he came with good news and not judgment. When Jesus left the grave, he came with a will to forgive those who would ask, which angered so many, and even to this day, makes some turn away from that very same God. Now, we may experience the truth that Jesus protects and shades us as a relief. Like Jonah with his plant, we feel God's forgiveness under the shade of the tree, but if we are not careful, we will also find ourselves like Jonah. The moment we face adversity and we don't feel the cool of the tree protecting us from the sun, that we will then become jealous of those who are receiving the shade. And the truth is, a heart of gratitude, you need three things. And I'm going to close it with this. Three things that I hope you walk away knowing. Number one, biblical gratitude always starts with an understanding of who God is. Our perception of who God is will directly influence how we display gratitude even when we're thrown into the den of lions. Unlike the world that teaches live your best life now, that's how much of this world thinks God's purpose is. Get your Rolex, get your jet. But God died on a cross so you could wear one too. Because in so doing, you not only free yourself, but in your gratitude toward God, you recognize that your neighbor needs that cross as well. The next thing we need is praise. Biblical gratitude is hindered when we only praise God when we feel like things are good. But you see, God is good. So regardless of how we feel in the moment, he is still always worthy to be praised. Praise is what puts our egos into check. And praise is the thing that will silence the voice of the enemy. Because when the enemy says to you that you're not worthy, your praise says, but he is. When the enemy says you cannot make it, praise says, but he can. The last thing that you have to have for biblical gratitude is to know the promises of God. The true promises of the word. I'm not talking about health and wealth. I'm not talking about just happiness on this mortal earth. I'm talking about the promises of God that said he would never leave you nor forsake you. The promises of God that said he would be a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. The promises of God that says he would go before you and make the crooked way straight, but he would also be your rear guard and that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. 
The promises that says he will be your strong tower, your shield, your buckler. He will be your defense. And the promises that say in a world of craziness, he will also be your peace. But above all of those, it's the promise that says he will be your king. Let's all stand. There is so much more that I could say on this topic. And the truth is, I think that's part of why Scripture tells us that for every day in eternity, we will be praising God because there's not enough words, enough time on the earth to truly express to God just how great He is. So gratitude is not about changing who God is. Gratitude is about helping us to change how we look at God. That day by day we try to know him a little more and become a little less like us in the world. It's a process. It's a process of the heart. Gratitude must come from here first. You can do the physical actions, but if your heart is not in a place of offering gratitude to God, you're just spinning your wheels. Just like holiness and everything else, it has to start here. We're going to close in prayer, and then I've asked them to play a song. There's not, I'm not necessarily having an altar call. By all means, if you want to pray, you can. It's just a song that I think kind of I, I like to listen to around this time of year that talks about gratitude. Um, but let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, O Lord, that your word is forever established under heaven, O God, that it doesn't matter the empire, the time, the age, that your word is forever settled, that your word is even above your name, that heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word shall not, which also means that your promises will not pass away, that they are also forever settled under heaven. Help us, O God, as we enter in this time of giving thanks to cultivate a life of gratitude that seeks to know you more, we give you all glory, all honor, in Jesus' name, amen.